Hello listeners, I'm Jed Frias and welcome to Savvy Sit-Down, a place of free-thinking Seventh-day Adventist discussion. Our Bible thought of today is taken from John 3 verse 5 to 10, and it says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? That is one of the favorite Bible verses of our guest for today, Obi Ray. Obi Ray has a Bachelor of Science double major in Ecological and Evolutionary Biology and History and the Philosophy of Science, which he received at the University of Toronto. He is the current director of the Maharlika Pathfinder Club, and he is also a biology and chemistry teacher at Crawford Adventist Academy. Hi, Obi. Welcome to the show. Hi, Fritz. Thanks for having me. Okay, so... Wait, you introduced yourself as Jed. Do I have to address you as Jed? Uh, it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, so, what's up? Why is that one of your favorite Bible verses? Nicodemus is a person who grew up in a religious system where he becomes a teacher and feels like he understands so much. And then here comes Jesus who starts to begin to break down truth to him and he doesn't get it. And often in my spiritual life, I find that even though I've learned a lot, I still have so much more to learn. And I think that if you're an honest Christian on that journey, it's important to always be learning more about who God is. So let's learn more about you, Ovi. Tell us a bit about your religious background. Oh, man. Um, I was born to Seventh-day Adventist parents, so I've been attending church my whole life, even though I wasn't a Christian the whole time. I went to Christian education for grades 1 to grade 12, so actually the school I'm teaching at right now is the school I attended from grades 1 to grade 12. And then I went to University of Toronto. I can honestly say that even though I was at Christian school, I wasn't a Christian. And it wasn't until uh, later on in my life where I began to start asking very difficult questions about life, such as, you know, how can God be good if so much bad stuff is happening? Why doesn't this good God get rid of evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people if God is so good? Is the Bible historically accurate? Is it a book that we can base belief on and stuff? And it wasn't until I asked those questions that I found answers that began to make sense to me and led me back to Christianity. I would say I committed to being Christian around six, seven years ago now can't remember the date exactly. I don't think there is an exact date. But I do know there was a point in my life where that shift really happened, where I went from having a lot of knowledge about the Bible to genuinely believing the God of the Bible is real. And since then, I haven't looked back. Care to explain a bit more in detail your testimony? There's two parts. So first, I needed to be convinced logically. Initially, it didn't make sense because I didn't have any answers to those hard questions. But as time went on and as I kept on honestly looking, so for example, like history of the resurrection, 
there's evidence to believe that the best case situation that fits that story is Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And right now, because that explanation takes the fewest assumptions and appears to match the history best, that's the answer I go by. It seems like this Jesus guy was resurrected from the dead. Finding answers to questions like that, so you can't, ob obviously, you can't prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, right? But you can look back in history and see, okay, what would it have looked like if he was raised from the dead versus what would it have looked like if it was a fake or if he pretended to be raised from the dead or his disciples lied to everyone. Some explanations seem to make more sense than others and that explanation that fits the Christian belief structure appears to make the most sense. At least for now. At least based on the evidence I have in front of me. And I believe that all of us on this journey of life should be evidence-based believers. I don't think everyone's going to make that jump in terms of their Christian walk because for some people, the evidence that God is working in their life is enough for them, right? But I also think that we, especially educated people, should be able to answer someone about questions like that. How do you know Jesus was raised from the dead? Or how do you know that the Bible's a historical book or has history in it? Finding good questions to those answers convince me logically. The other part is uh, being convinced emotionally. It doesn't matter how much like a case makes sense to you unless you choose to believe it. There reached a point where I was convinced logically, but emotionally I hadn't decided to be a Christian because being Christian meant a change in the way I lived and a change in the way that I operated my life. And one day it felt like God kept asking me, hey, you've been searching for whether this has been true or not for so long. When are you going to make a choice to believe it? And one of my frustrations with the church was there's all these people who say that they're Christian, but they're not Christian. And then I brought up that concern again in my conversation with God. And it felt like God was telling me, it doesn't matter what they're doing. If you know this is true and you just want to follow me, just follow me. It was like a light switch came on. I, I became heart committed. Jesus's character is just that attractive and his story makes sense and it fits and answers all of those questions that we're trying to answer in life. There's a theologian or a preacher person named Ravi Zacharias. Mm -hmm. He talks about four critical questions everyone tries to answer in life. Origin, so where do we come from? Purpose, so what's the meaning of life? Ethics or morality, what's good and what's bad? And then destiny, what happens when we die? Every belief framework tries to answer these four questions coherently. I find that Christianity's answers to them right now are the most coherent, most historically based, have the strongest evidence for, and are the most attractive. That's something you don't run into often. Sometimes you'll have one belief system that's really attractive, or one system that has evidence. But when I found Christianity and asked those questions, like all of those things came together. The answers to those deeper questions just matched everything that I was seeing around me. And so I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian and unless something else happens in my life that convinces me that, you know, something else is better to believe in. But really, like, the more I look into the world, the more things that point me back to this. And so I'm here. Okay, well, uh, we'll try and answer or talk about some of those questions later on the show, specifically Origin. For now, 
like you said, you did 12 years of schooling at the school that you're working at right now, uh, which is an Adventist school. Yep. So what's your experience like with Adventist education? Ooh, I'm actually taking a philosophy of education course right now, too, because of the school. They told me to educate more, which is good. I like that, you know, the professional workplace is doing this. One of the quotes that stands out from the book, it's critiquing Christian education. The writer calls Christian education currently as it is, as secular education with a chocolate coating of Christianity. As in, a lot of what I did when I was at Christian school here felt like it would be the same at any other school. But we added morning prayer. But we added religious services once in a semester. Or that we added devotionals in class. And this was one of my real frustrations growing up in the system because it felt like Christianity was an add-on rather than the foundation of everything that we do here. I will say now, looking back in hindsight and working here for the past year, that a lot of teachers realize this too. And a lot of administrators realize this too. Like, we don't necessarily know how to solve that issue or we haven't placed a system in place to solve it yet. I can 100% say that when I was here, there were genuinely Christian people. And there were genuinely Christian teachers that really looked out for me, really tried to point me to Jesus back in those days, even though I wasn't having any of it. Like, I didn't really believe in God back then. Seeing those teachers here now still and trying to work with students who were like me has been a powerful testimony. It's been awesome to see that even though our system right now isn't Christian education as we want it to be, we're still trying to fix it, and we're still trying to move from a place where Christianity is the chocolate coating to where Christianity is the foundation. And I hope in the years that I'm here that I can help contribute to that. I don't know if it will be done. Man, it's hard. It's very easy to be a system like everyone else and add Christianity on top, because that's the easy thing to do. It's hard for an entire organization to be fundamentally changed from the bottom, from its foundation, and then spread that foundation to students, especially if not all students want to hear the Christian message. It's a challenge. Okay. And I know that it was an elementary and high school versus a university where you attended a secular university, the University of Toronto. How would you compare the two? Because I know... A lot of argument that certain people might make would be that uh, religious schools don't allow students to critically think compared to secular schools. What would you say to that? Ooh, I think teachers try to engage us in critical thinking here, but I'm not sure how effective it is. And I don't know if that's the fault of the teachers or the system or a combination of factors. Maybe like we were just bad students here. I do remember when I went to university, though, that I really began to seriously think about answers to questions. And I wasn't really doing that when I was in high school because high school was easy. Elementary school was easy. Like, I just showed up, I got good grades, I got a pat on the back by my parents or, you know, a smile, and then I went about my day and, like, I wasn't really thinking about the future. But when I went to university and really began, shoot, what am I going to do with my life? Those critical questions of what's the meaning in life? What's purpose in life going to be? How do I live to be good or bad? Or even, is Christianity true? When life hit, I had to answer those questions fast. And I had to seriously begin thinking about those questions. That took a long time. Like, I spent years trying to figure out, hey, like, is this a real thing? Or is something else true? 
and that stuff. I don't know. I'm not even answering your question. Hmm. I do think it's good in secular schools that you get exposed to different worldviews, more so than a Christian school, because it felt like those professors and those teachers were at least open to those discussions. And at my, at University of Toronto, they really encouraged it. Here, some teachers would, some teachers wouldn't. Or maybe it was just some teachers were easier to talk to than others. I think when I was in university, I was just at a age where I was thinking more critically because I really wanted to find those answers. I can't really speak for anyone else's experience, though. I do know that some of my students right now are thinking critically, and some of them were like me. They're just coasting through life, figure it out later type. I'm sure they're glad that they have someone like you being their teacher. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm pretty hard on them. <laughs> well, I'm sure they'll appreciate it in the future. That's the dream. That's the hope. Praying for these guys all the time, though. Okay, so let's try and discuss this question of origin. So as mentioned earlier, you studied ecological and evolutionary biology and science in general in your... Um, university career. So, evolution versus creation. What exactly is your stance? Some definitions first. So, there's the idea of evolution scientifically and the idea of evolution philosophically. Scientifically, when we talk about evolution, we're just talking about genetic change over time that's observable. This is definitely real, at least in our world. There's very, very strong evidence that Organisms change over time through mutation and genetic drift and gene flow and natural selection. There's a lot of evidence that these processes are real, 100%. Or there's just no better explanation right now, and I don't see us replacing our biological theories anytime soon. So that's evolution as a science, simply genetic change over time. Evolution as a philosophy. So when we talk about this, this is usually where the layman sees evolution. As in, we all evolved from a common ancestor. All life you see came from a single-celled organism initially at some point in the very distant past. And now all the multitudes of species descended from that. I find evolution as a philosophy very different, difficult to believe in. Because chemically, we haven't seen that happen. Or we've seen very little evidence that it could. It's hard to defend. Evolution versus creation. So very often people consider evolution and creation to be mutually exclusive. Evolution as a science and creation shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Because one, evolution as a scientist just talking about what we observe in biology now. Creation is always going to be philosophy, as in this is where we came from. Just because we see a process happening currently does not necessarily mean it's where we came from. Evolution as a philosophy and creation as philosophy, those two are mutually exclusive because obviously you can't originate from both. One of them has to be true and the other one will necessarily be false. The question with origin is, were we created or did we evolve from something? So from a philosophical standpoint, do you believe in creation as a philosophy? I believe, yeah, I believe that at some point God created life on earth. And it 
makes a lot less sense to me that the Christian God, assuming the Christian God's real once again, it makes very little sense to me that the Christian God would create organisms that would eventually evolve into humans because it means God hates billions of generations of monkeys, not monkeys, uh, human ancestors to eventually get to humans and then die for them, as well as all of the species that had to exist and then eventually die on the way. That doesn't seem like a very loving God. Okay, so... Believing in creation as a philosophy doesn't necessarily mean that you believe in Adam and Eve. Do you believe in Adam and Eve? Yes. As in, like, Bible characters Adam and Eve? God created man and woman at the beginning? Yes. Yeah, I believe in Adam and Eve. What is your opinion on the whole young earth creationism? Interesting. So, young earth creationism can go to one of two ways. Well, it depends on what you mean by young earth. So, let's make a distinction between when earth existed and when life began on earth. I genuinely believe that Earth is very old. If you look in your Bible, it'll say God created the heavens and the Earth at the beginning. But later on, God comes back to Earth and then creates life on it. We don't know when, because we don't have time, and I don't necessarily think that time scales in generation or Genesis are the same as time scales we have now. But at some point, God returns to Earth and then creates life on it. This is what we frame as, or what we teach as, Creation Week. And then once again, some exorbitant, some amount of time passes before the fall. And then between the fall and the flood, and between, well, after the flood and we get to Abraham, then we arrive in time scales that I guess I'm comfortable with. I don't know what I believe about, you know, like, someone living 900 years and so on. But th those are interesting passages. I think in terms of comparing the age of the universe to the age of life on Earth, that the universe is very old and life on Earth is very young. Can I put a number on it? Not really, but I don't think God did creation week a billion years ago, or hundreds of millions of years ago, like geologists claim that life began on Earth now. And you believe that this creation week is literal days? I don't think it's important. It could be literal days. It could not be literal days. The importance of the days in Genesis 1 for me is the symbolism. God is creating spaces and then filling them intentionally. And it creates a pattern. Creation can be split into two separate areas. God creates spaces and then God fills them. Days 2, 3, and 4, he's creating spaces. Days 5, 6, and 7, he's filling them. Day one, he just appears on the scene. Let there be light, God appears. Day two, he creates space. So there's a air space and a water space. It's called the firmament, firmament, or the atmosphere, or whatever. Day three, he creates the land space. He pulls the land out of the water. I guess God terraforms. You know the game Spore? No. no darn, man. <laughs> Anyways, God's terraforming. It's a word we use when we're like talking about changing a planet so that it's mm. possible for mm. like life to exist on. Yeah, like exist on uh, Zod wanted to do in Man of Steel. You got it! Exactly! <laughs> there you go. Maybe your listeners know Superman references. Um, so day two, creates space, air and water. Day three, pulls the land down and then plants things. Day four, he puts the earth in position with the sun, moon, and stars so that the person who's watching Creation Week happen can see these things appear. Very obvious how the first two are material spaces, right? Day five, he starts filling the material spaces, so... And day two, he creates an air space and a water space. And day five, he creates water animals and air animals. 
logically, if on day three he creates a land space, what's he going to fill it with on day six? Land animals. Land animals. So we get animals and bugs and humans and things. Day seven, he creates Sabbath. Sabbath is in a material space. It's a time space. The reason God positions the earth where it is on days day four with the sun and moon and stars is so that we'll have days and weeks and days and seasons and years. And on the seventh day, he fills one of those spaces, not with another material thing, but a time thing, a day to spend with him, a day to focus on relationship, a day we call as Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath. And I think this patterning of creating spaces and filling them with creation week is a lot more important than were the days literal days or not, because the point wasn't this was a 24-hour period. The point is God does things for a reason, and then God created time so that he could spend time with us. That's deep, man. That hits me hard. I love the symbolism in creation. And if those are literal days, so be it. If they're not literal days, uh, I could care less. They could be. They might not be. So what would you say is the strongest evidence for creation? Oh, man. I don't think you'll like this. Let's hear it. Jesus said creation happened. Strongest evidence. Jesus isn't a liar, as far as we can tell. I know what you're saying, but for our listeners, can you ex explain more? Wonderful. Okay, so logic follows. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, and Jesus is the Son of God, and God is love, then Jesus wouldn't lie. Because Jesus keeps the commandments. At some point in his preaching, when addressing a question about marriage, or I'm not even sure what the Pharisees are asking. Pharisees asking the question. Jesus says, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And this is the evidence we have for creation. Jesus wouldn't lie about there being a creation because he doesn't have a reason to. Why would he lie? And because evidence shows that Jesus is who he is, therefore, Jesus saying that, makes it true and that's the strongest evidence as far as we can tell um i mean there's other things also but none of them ultimately persuasive you know by itself without the narrative of the bible you can't just look at what we see in the world and then claim that creation happened right now creationist arguments usually follow the line of evolution doesn't answer all the questions or evolutionary theory as a philosophy can't replicate the events to create life. So because we haven't done it or we can't see it, therefore it didn't happen, therefore creation. Arguments like that without using the Bible by themselves are weak because who knows what if someone does generate life in a vat at some point, right? Arguing that creation happened because current scientific theories don't have all the answers isn't enough to build a worldview around. If Jesus isn't a liar, then yeah, Jesus isn't a liar, you know? There's other things, too, very substantial. Cambrian explosions, one of the favorites that creationists have. As in, at some point, there's very little life in the fossil record, and then suddenly there's an extinction event where there's all of this life that appearingly comes out of nowhere. So there's that also. In the fossil record, we have bursts of diversity as we would say, that don't make sense unless some sort of creative event happens, or 
Who knows? Maybe Watson and Crick are right. I think Crick's the one that believes in the th seeding theory. Do you know what the seeding theory is? No idea. No, life generates somewhere else in the universe because there's no way it would have happened on Earth. And then it crash lands on Earth and then everything evolves from that life. Mm -hmm. And that could be sent by aliens or some higher power or it just so happened to be on a meteor and then land on Earth and then like, no, life started because the chemical conditions on Earth can't start life right now. So who knows? Okay. But believing in those theories creates more assumptions. It makes me have more assumptions than just a single assumption of, you know, Jesus is telling the truth, you know? Okay, what would you say is the strongest evidence for evolution? Evolution as the origin of life? Yes. Oh, once again, very little. Because we don't understand the conditions of how we could have started. As in, we have theories, right? Oh, once upon a time, there were a ton of, you know, particles. And some of the particles turned into amino acids, and some of them turned into carbs, and some of them turned into nucleic acids, and some of them turned into proteins. And then they all got together, and suddenly life was formed. Right now, as far as you know, blending all of those things together has not produced anything remotely close to life. A lot of the ideas behind evolution being the theory. So so me and my friends at university, this is where we usually disagree. We both agree that evolution is observable, as in genetic change over time is observable. And for me, because I believe in God, what that means to me is, oh, evolution happens in a world where there's sin, where things die, things need a mechanism of change so that nothing goes extinct. Evolution to me, as a science, makes sense in a world where the fall has happened. Because, once again, yeah, in a world where things die, you need natural selection, you need gene flow, you need genetic drift, you need mutation to create variability in the species so that you have a chance of surviving in a cha constantly changing environment. This is important. For them, because they're not with the underlying assumption God is real, they believe, okay, I see evolution in the real world, I don't see evidence for God, well, I guess we came from evolution. And for them, that's enough. We see it in the world as an operative force of how species change over time. Therefore, it's likely, because there is no God, species came from this. None of us right now can prove our theories, and I don't expect us to be able to in the future at all. But for them, because they see it, they believe it, sort of in the same way that if a Christian sees God, they believe in God. And I don't mean like literally sees. We look at the evidence around us and arrive at conclusions. What is something evolutionists often get wrong about creation? Ooh. Very often, I guess they think of all of us as young earth creationists. Very often, they also think of us as people who believe in species permanence, as in, and I can't lie, there are creationists that believe that species haven't changed since the beginning. They believe Jesus created giraffes and chihuahuas and gorillas as we see them now. We know that isn't true though, because they're not in the fossil record. If there was a giraffe at the beginning, then yeah, we'd have a giraffe fossil. We clearly don't have giraffe fossils, at least none that we've found. They believe that a lot of us are anti-science. You believe in creation, then you're clearly not looking at the evidence around you. You clearly don't see the evolution around you. You don't see the struggle for life. I remember reading about Darwin and how Darwin eventually let go of the idea of God because he saw the struggle for life, all of the competition and all of the animals trying to fight for survival. 
and his idea of God no longer fit the picture that he was seeing in the real world, where he saw survival of the fittest or so. And then he thought to himself, how could a good God let this happen? Where's God in all of this? Hmm. So what is something creationists often get wrong about evolution? No, they fail to separate the science from the philosophy. As in, just because I say I see evolution as a thing in the real world, therefore I believe evolution's where we came from. I guess I'm an anomaly because the truth is we don't, not every school effectively teaches this. I can really appreciate my colleague here at Crawford because he's a big stickler for this also, as in evolution is real, but we didn't come from evolution. So creationists very often, especially the ones not educated in science, don't see that those two concepts are different, that evolution is, there's evidence for evolutionary change in the real world, but we have to separate that from the idea that evolution is where we came from. Okay, let's uh, move on from talk about science, uh, and let's move on to a different ministry that you are a part of. Uh, let's talk about Pathfinders. So, what is Pathfinders? Pathfinders is a ministry I grew up in. Uh, it's done not just by the Ontario Conference, but by Seventh-day Adventists around the world. The Ontario Pathfinders are a Christian organization dedicated to building young people into responsible and mature individuals who engage in active and selfless service. My role as a director is to, well, help that along, you know? There's a lot of good we can do in the world, and there's a lot of ways we can step up as leaders, even though you're young. Pathfinders is for children aged 10 to 16. People older than that volunteer to help the program as well as teach the young ones. I find it's an effective way to reach others in the same age group and then develop leadership skills. You kind of touched upon it, but what would you say is special about the Pathfinder ministry? Ooh, good question. Right now, I think this age range, 10 to 16, even 17 and 18 is critical because it's around this time where you begin to ask questions. It's where I began to ask questions about what do I really believe or what's Christianity supposed to be or what's my purpose in life going to be? I think Pathfinders is a place where we can answer those questions effectively if done right. And I think because so many Adventist people put their children into Pathfinders, it's a great avenue for youth leaders or older, older people to reach young people and hopefully disciple them. What are some of the things you do in Pathfinders? We teach children about Jesus. We go on camping trips. We teach them how to drill and march. We want to start a drum corps this year. That would be a lot of fun. We do a lot of, or we're trying to do more volunteer work and volunteer service. Trying to engage the ones in Pathfinders and doing more, you know, outreach and reaching others. A lot of things. So I guess because they do a lot of things in Pathfinders, it might be hard to go and aim in a certain direction, I guess. So as the, their director, my question is, what is your goal? Ultimately, the goal for any director, I believe, is to point young people to Jesus. In this stage of their life, they're listening to you. 
and they're willing to hear what you have to say. And your role as a Pathfinder director is to point them to God, demonstrate the character of God, and hopefully, as a result of that, they'll begin to think that God is real. Or they'll begin to critically ask questions that you, as a leader, can either lead them to answers or give them answers. I really think it's important for someone who's a Pathfinder director to really have that character for young people, to really genuinely care for young people, as well as their development, as well as their mental and social, and help them develop in all aspects of their life. Help them become well-rounded people that really want to serve others, because that's what Jesus would do. So what are some of the challenges that prevent you from achieving that goal? First challenge is I haven't been able to dedicate all of my time to planning things for Pathfinders, or not even planning, just being present for the kids. I haven't been able to create the change I want to see, and I understand that's my fault. I could definitely be more engaged and more active in getting them to do more things. In general, planning events is hard because of all the types of approvals you need to get to. Because the church is a organization, it's important to get this thing that we call board approval. I think SEVI listeners will understand this, but essentially you need this group called the church board. Think of them as a house of representatives for a country or a province or something. You need to get their approval for doing events or taking children to do outreach, or taking children to do volunteer work. That process is long, and the process can be frustrating. And because the process is frustrating, sometimes it feels like very little gets done. And I don't think it's right to blame them for that. It's just a fault of the system that we have right now. It's very difficult to be an autonomous action unit dedicated to developing young people when everything you do feels like it gets micromanaged. The other challenge is, I think this is another challenge for me personally, but who knows, maybe other Pathfinder groups have this too, is we need more leaders. We really wish we had people that would just do things for other young people. And I'm not sure how we can get to a place where we just have so many people who are passionate about this age group that they just do things for them or do things with them. Sometimes I look at other religious organizations and I see how on fire some of them are for God. And then I see them just do things spontaneously as in like, hey, there's 10 of us and all of us love Jesus. We should go do a Feed the Homeless project or we should go sing at a church or we should go tell others about Jesus, do a prayer walk or something. If we had more leaders that wanted to actively engage our young people in doing that stuff, I feel like Pathfinders would be more of pointing young people to Jesus and less of we're drilling today or we're reading Bible study today or we're practicing a skit today. And it's not that those things that I said at the end are bad things. It's just if Pathfinders is meant to point people to Jesus and it's meant to actively engage people in service to others, then that should be our primary objective. Nearly all of our events should be serving others or learning more about God. Very often in Pathfinders, it doesn't feel like that's the driving force. There's a lot of things I wish I could do for this age group that I haven't been able to. 
I've been doing this thing for four years, and I wish I still had the enthusiasm I did as when I started. But back then, I also had a lot of free time. I was still going to university. I didn't have to deal with a full-time job. I didn't, I didn't have other responsibilities yet. Life gets busy, but it shouldn't ever be too busy for ministry. Maybe I just got to do a better job balancing things out. It's definitely not easy. It's not. So why are you Seventh-day Adventist versus a different form of Christianity? Uh, two points for this one. So first, well, it appears to me that we have a biblical message. I do believe in this idea that Seventh-day Adventists call the three angels message. It's in Revelation 14, also specific to Seventh-day Adventisms. We believe in this idea called growing in Christ. And I believe that there's a moment in your life when you choose to believe for the first time. Call it the salvation moment. But between that salvation moment and when your life here expires or ends, if you're on that journey with Jesus, then you become more like him. That seems very biblical to me. Is that specific to the Seventh-day Adventist Church? We're uh, one of the few people that has written belief on sanctification, yeah. For a lot of other people, the salvation point is enough, and then you're saved. Usually, most other Christian denominations only focus on, do we believe in Trinity, or do we believe in baptism of a certain type, or what do we believe about where we came from, or what happens when we die. Sevis are annihilationists. Instead of burning for eternity, you burn up and that's it. If you choose not to follow God, you just die. And that's it. The concept of eternal punishment, as in I'm burning in hell forever, is one that I don't find to be biblical, even though many Christian denominations believe it's biblical. And the comparison I like to make is, or the discussion on that belief is, the Bible says there will be an eternal fire with eternal punishment. So the question is, am I being punished eternally, or is the punishment eternal? Don't you love how English has this ambiguity? For them, it also comes from this idea that the soul is immortal. It's initially from Aristotle, and then Thomas Aquinas tied in Aristotle's ideas on the soul with Christianity later on in the 1300s. Ugh, history, never mind. The question of whether the soul is eternal, as in like, when I go to hell, is my soul burning forever? So most Christians believe my soul is burning forever if I choose not to believe in God. I believe your soul burns up and you're then you're dead. In the same way that most atheists believe at the end of your life, that's it. You're dead. There's nothing after. To other Christians, I just tell them my eternal fire is hotter. My eternal fire, you know, like gets the job done. I guess my God's stronger than yours. I like that God. Anything else we believe? That's very different from others. Sabbath. Sabbath? Oh, yeah! <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Like, there's a lot of Seventh-day believing organizations. So there's these people called, like, Seventh-day Baptists. They believe in Sabbath, too. So I guess it's, like, all of those combinations also. Like, you know, Jesus kept the Sabbath. You know, I guess I'm going to keep the Sabbath, man. Sabbath is something from our earlier discussion, creation. Like, Sabbath was this thing even before the fall. Why would we let this go if God created a day for us to believe in? Very often, people worship on Sundays. And I feel like you can worship any day of the week you want, you know? Like, yo, if I'm going to go to church on Sunday, I'll go to church on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with me celebrating Jesus' resurrection. We believe Jesus resurrected on Sunday, so that's why a lot of Christian denominations today go to church on Sunday. 
But just because I'm going to church on Sunday doesn't mean I need to let go of the idea of Sabbath, yo. Sabbath's been created from the beginning, and Jesus kept Sabbath. So I'll keep Sabbath. I'm a Christian. I'm following Christ. Is there anything else we believe? Stuff like the health message or whatever, those aren't salvation issues or anything. No, they're not. So here's the thing about like the Seventh-day Adventist message. I feel like we have a lot of truth, even if it's not related to salvation per se. So for example, like living the health message, yo, God wants me to be a healthy guy. I find this to be biblical. There's nothing wrong with this. We found a lot of truth. That's one of the big reasons I guess I'm attracted to this denomination. And you might say I'm biased because I grew up in it, but when I ask those questions, is what this church believes biblical, nearly every time the answer is yes. And because of that, I've stayed. Second reason is because I feel like God's called me to this church, at least for now. I find that my ministry is here specifically for Pathfinders. Like God's called me to be a leader for these this specific age group of people. And as long as the call's here, this is where I'm going to be. If God's called me to a place, if God's called you to a place, and I believe that that's where you should go. So I'm at this church. What are some of the weaknesses that you see in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Oh my goodness, Daniels. Let's not start with prophecy. Big weakness. We have a lot of truth. We don't live a lot of truth. Once again, we're very good at acting Christian. That doesn't necessarily mean we're very good Christians. We're very good at showing up to church on Sabbath. Hooray for Sabbath. Sabbath's a great day. Sitting in a service, feeling blessed, and then socializing, and then going home. But we could be doing a better job sharing the gospel with others. It doesn't matter how much truth you have if you never share it with others. Jesus' primary objective here wasn't just to sh have truth. He is the truth. But he spent his life telling people the truth. Why aren't we outreaching more? And I don't mean outreach as in we have a revelation seminar twice a year at our church and then tell people that are already Christian to come. I mean like reaching our friends, our family that don't attend church, reaching our neighbors, reaching our community with the gospel. Why aren't we doing that more? There's some other small stuff. So like some interpretations of prophecy, I guess, are very fishy to me. This 2300 day thing ending in 1844 is very interesting. Some of the assumptions you make to get to that date, to me, are flimsy. I don't think it's supremely important. I, I just wish that my church that I attended lived the gospel. Not just individuals in the church, because there are people in the church that understand what the gospel is and are doing it. There's people at my school that understand what the gospel is and are doing it. But as an organization in North America, I don't know about the rest of the world. It appears like the rest of the world church is doing okay, but North America, it doesn't look like we're doing well. We have small pockets of people who are effective at reaching others, but the church as a whole, we're just good at attending. Maybe that answer relates to my next question, but why do you think people are leaving the church? It feels fake. It feels like an add-on. I nearly left, well, I'd mentally clocked out even though I was still attending and teaching Sabbath school and stuff, but like to me, church, before I had answers that made sense, felt like theater. It felt like I'm showing up here and I'm appearing good, but I don't really believe what they're teaching. I think maybe the problem's twofold. Young people, or older people, don't have 
strong answers to critical questions like what does Christianity think the meaning of life is or what's good and bad in Christianity how do I know that the Bible is something I can believe in they don't have strong answers for that so it's easy to leave behind something you don't believe in because you don't believe in it and then second fake Christianity is the biggest turnoff to Christianity in the world like other worldviews can be attractive but if you grow up in a worldview that says something and does something else you're turned off Seventh-day Adventists like have interesting ideas about like who the Pope is and stuff But I can really connect with his quote when he says like I'd rather have 1,000 genuine Christians than Two billion people who say that they're Christian like a thousand genuine Christians would literally change the world if they were the only ones that people saw as Christian Because then they'd see what Christianity is supposed to be but because we have all of these people and I'm like a culprit in this too because there's a lot more I could be doing to be a better Christian, right? But like, if all of us were genuine Christians, I don't think many people would leave. They'd really see who Jesus is and they'd be so attracted to him that they'd want to be Christian rather than the other way around. A lot of people don't want to be Christian because oh, you're just one of those fake guys. And would you say that being a genuine Christian is the best way to evangelize? 100%. I think that's how Jesus did it. I think Jesus effectively reached so many people and his disciples after him even more so effectively reached so much people because they saw that their his character was one that were he genuinely cared about others people remember interactions with this guy because he made a difference then he knew why he was doing it it wasn't just i'm trying to be good it's i'm being good because god's good this is who god is and if god's good yo what a great world you know that's the gospel that the creator of the universe the one who started it all genuinely cares about you as an individual. That's gospel. What could be better news than that? It gives real hope for people. What is your hope for the church? What do you want the church to look like in the future? My hope for the church, just that all the people attending have a good understanding of what the gospel is and then live their lives doing it. Like you said, there's no better way to evangelize than genuinely being like Christ. Because if we were all like Christ, people would flock. People would want to be a part of it. I'm not saying everyone would, but people would. And I think that's a great place to end this show off, Obi. Uh, is there any plug-in shout-outs or good reads that you would like to share? Uh, simply Good News by N.T. Wright. One of the scientists that I'm really impressed with recently is this guy named James Tour. Google this guy. He's a Jewish-raised human that became a Christian. And he's also super cool in chemistry. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you! It was fun. Bye!